Well, we come to a point in a time in David's life when we are just beginning to see God's chastisement of David for his sins. This is not just one chapter. This goes forward for several chapters ahead of us in this part of God's revealed inspired word. But as we begin to consider, it's important to remember, again, the language of verse number 13. The Lord also hath put away thy sin. The chastening hand of God upon David is coming upon one who has already experienced and been assured of the certainty of God's salvation. So you cannot look upon the future chapters here and suggest, well, these are God's ways with David to bring him back to repentance. He has repented and he has been assured of God's pardon. The Lord also hath put away thy sin. You also can't look at these chapters and suggest, well, this is just simply Old Testament stuff. This is covenantal language, God's justice upon a wayward covenant member. David is used, of course, in Romans chapter 4 as an illustration of the justifying faith that you and I know as new covenant believers. So we've got to be careful. Uh, We don't misunderstand these chapters from the very outset. God has been merciful to David already. God has covered David's sins. And if I put it this way, David even tonight is in glory because of God's covenantal mercies. None of that is in doubt in the chapters that lie ahead. Yet sin will often carry consequences that are painful and persistent. I say often carry consequences because it is not always And it is not so for everyone. God's ways of dealing with men are unique and personal. And there are some who sin in very, very wicked ways. And yet they seem to avoid consequence. This is true even for those who are genuinely the Lord's people. They fall. They fall into sin. And God in his mercy spares them some of the worst consequences that may come from their sin. But for others... That is not the case, and they sin in a way, and they bring consequences that last, that are persistent, and are very, very painful. But having said that, there's clearly a uniqueness in this situation pertaining to David. Verse number four makes it clear, we'll come back to this later on. How be it because by this great deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And so why is we... Got to be careful we do not misapply this. We've also got to understand that we've got to apply this particularly to David. There are personal things that relate to David only. We are certainly given here an account. An account that should cause us to flee from sin. The account we have here should cause us to look to Joseph's running and David's ruin And choose the way of Joseph and not the way of David. The chapters that come ahead are painful and are troubling. And may God use it in each of our lives to help us to seek first Christ and his kingdom. To flee from sin and pursue righteousness as those whose sins have been covered. And so as we look 
at this account of this first account of the Lord's chastening of David, we see, of course, that here we are reading the account of the child dying. We're given the details there. It's there in the verse number 18. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the first thing to notice is the agony of losing a child. The pain and the emotions are very clear here. You sense the agony of David's soul right from the verse number 16 and following. We're going to see later on the details this gives us regarding his prayer, but for now I simply note his pain. The servants, they perceive this. They're worried when the child dies how they should speak to David. They saw how he vexed himself. So how much more will he vex himself now the child has died? And so you have in verse number 18 that language, how will he then vex himself? So they could see in his countenance, they could see in his conduct, how his soul was vexed due to the sickness of his child. He felt this very, very personally. It's also true when you go across to verse number 24, that we have an insight implied as to Bathsheba's pain at this time. Verse 24, and David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. I just don't want us to miss the human agony in this story. We're going to have to take some time to consider the ways of God in this. But as you think of God's ways, please be those who are sensitive to the human agony. So when we come to study this together, you may well get things that you will use in the future to help and to counsel people in times of great need. You may find people in your families or find others around you, friends, and you will, you will think to yourself, well, I, I've learned things from Second Samuel 12 that I can, I can speak into their situation and bring words of biblical instruction. But as you do so, please do not forget the first issue here. The human pain and agony that comes even under the chastening hand of God. There is pain and agony that is felt that we should never forget. The loss of a child is a very particular sorrow. Again, we don't have a hierarchy of suffering, if you like, but there are some things that, in a very particular sense, bring about a deepening of human emotions. A child is full of expectation, hopes and dreams, and those are dashed as a child is lost. Parents expect their children to have to have the pain of burying them, not the other way around. And so when you think of this pain and this agony, please understand clearly the death of a child is not always due to the sin of the parent. You know, sometimes when Parents lose children. They, they know this portion's in the word of God. And they find themselves going to the portion of God's word. And they, they see the reality of the language. Verse number 14. How be it because by this deed the child also is born unto thee shall surely die. And the Lord struck the child. Verse number 15. And clearly it is being taught here. That the death, the sickness and the death of this child is directly due to David's sin. His sin has brought this about. But that is not the case 
every time a child dies. David's sin is clear. It is egregious. It is awful. Highness sin that is clearly rebelling against God in the form of adultery and murder and deceit and all manner of things. And a sensitive child of God should not presume they've sinned in some way when God may, for his own sovereign purpose, take away a child that they dearly love. I think you know this, but it must be said again clearly. This death of this child is unique to David. It does not mean that God would not do it in another situation. But a grieving parent or a careless counselor should not misuse this portion in that way. However, having said that the death of a child is not always due to the sin of the parent, there is one thing that is clear. And that is that we must acknowledge that the Lord is sovereign over every death. The Lord is sovereign over death itself. It is appointed unto man once to die. Job, of course, gives us the clearest manifestation, testimony of God's sovereignty in this regard. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think the first time I was aware of that text was in the death of a 19-year-old friend. I'd never really taken the time to notice. I was also 19. This text was read in my hearing, The Lord hath taken away. Oh, that text causes you to search your heart. Do I believe and can I trust in a God that would take away in this regard? You see, in the agony of the loss of a child, in the agony of loss in any circumstance, we have to come to terms with the truth that our losses do not happen outside the control of the Lord. I think it's important that grieving families understand that in the loss, the Lord, he didn't take his hands off for a few moments. No higher power overcame the Lord at that time. The Lord is sovereign over these circumstances. He knows his way. And so though we may not understand the way of the Lord, especially in the passing of a child, we by grace will fight the fight of faith and confess the Lord's ways are good and wise. I'll come back to this later on, but for now, again, these things ought to in some way govern our understanding of the agony of the loss of a child. But secondly, please note with me the mystery of God's dealings with men. This account provokes some very serious questions. We could ignore them, simply leave things as they are said, just say, well, the Bible says it the way it says it, and we could push our questions to the side. It's often the method we use, isn't it, when we're faced with hard questions regarding the ways of God? I'm not suggesting the questions are always, or it's always possible to answer the questions. But I think it's important not to ignore the questions themselves. As we acknowledge the questions, surely we're helped to see some precious truths. Why the child? Why not something else? Surely there's some other way. Isn't it the case later on that God gives David a choice? Of ways they would chasten him. 
Is it not right to ask the question, why the child? Why? Why would God forgive the sin, but still cause the child to die? Why David here, and yet not others? Others sin wickedly in this regard, and yet don't seem to face a consequence David faced. This is just a sample of questions. There's, there's more than that. These are just some questions that certainly cause us to think and wonder and ponder. And confess again the ways of God with men are often mysterious. So we sang the hymn. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. And I don't suggest that we have all the answers, but I think there are some things that we should take some time to consider. First of all, we should acknowledge that it is God's just, righteous prerogative to deal with us and our sins as he deems right. It is God's right to deal with us in ways that he perceives to be right. A.W. Pink, again, in his work on David, has some helpful language in this regard. He takes the text in Psalm 103, that God hath not dealt with us after our sins, And he said, well, how is that true here? And he interrogates that text in light of these events. And he says that it's true penally for David. Uh, David's sins are forgiven. He's not been dealt with after his sins or rewarded according to his iniquities. God is a God of justice, has forgiven his sins. But God forgiving David penally does not mean that God is forced to refrain himself from dealing with us, and this is Pink's term, governmentally. God forgives our sins, but still deals with us in a way for our benefit. God's dealings with the people of God in Israel shows us that God does deal with his people at times in chastening and in correction. That's not just an Old Testament thing. We don't spend too much time considering the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 regarding their abuses of the Lord's Supper. But we're told there, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. There were physical consequences for the rebellion of the church in Corinth. As God had forgiven sins, but yet came governmentally and brought judgment upon the people in this world. But Pink says this, I'm quoting directly here, he says this, Yet it must be remembered that God exercises his sovereignty in this, as in all things, the extent to which and the manner in which God makes his people smart for their inventions is determined by his own mere good pleasure. How God makes us smart and the manner, the extent of that is determined Determined by God's sovereign good pleasure, God's just prerogative. The Lord, for his own purposes, will deal with us as he wills. Dear child of God, that last sentence should be balm to your suffering soul. The Lord, for his own purposes, will deal with us as he deems right. And for the child of God, there is no better way for God to do us good. If God deals us according to our sins, as he deems right, 
That is because there is no better way for God to deal with us that will lead to our ultimate good. God is always wise, always kind, always gracious to his children, even as he deals with us in our sins. And so that perhaps is fundamentally what we see here. It is God's just prerogative to deal with us as he deems right. But it's also worth acknowledging here that David serves in a unique position. That's verse 14 again. David has by his sin given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. We're told expressly that the reason the child dies is because David's sin has wider consequences beyond David and Uriah. There's blasphemy by the enemies of God as a result of his sin. And though repentance was thorough, evangelical, and public, yet consequences had to follow. God's honor had to be upheld. And so this is not, verse 14 and following, is not questioning the genuineness of David's repentance. We studied Psalm 51 briefly last time. It is genuine, it is thorough, it is public, it is evangelical, gospel-hoping repentance. But God's honor must be upheld. The Baptist preacher Chantry says this, When the servants of God, and especially those who are publicly used to advance God's kingdom, when they sin scandalously, the enemies of the Lord attribute their immoral behavior to the character of the God whom they serve. And there is truth that when God's public servants sin publicly, they bring occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. Chantry continues, In public defense of the holiness of God, it must be shown that the Lord and his church do not endorse the sins of his servants, publicly demonstrating that God's people do not endorse their sins. You know, sometimes the Lord's people wonder about this. A prominent pastor may fall into gross sin, but by the time the sin comes to light, the pastor has already repented confessed his sins and sought peace with God. And yet they wonder, well, why must he be disciplined? Why put out of the pulpit? Why taking away his ordination credentials? Why all of this? Well, here's the reason. It is that the honor of God not be cast into the dirt. That there's a public recognition that the church does not endorse the sins. And so... You turn, please, very quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 5, just to bring this to New Testament terms. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, there's the details given regarding how you should handle the sin of an elder. Again, they're treated carefully. There's got to be testimonies from multiple sources. But those that do sin, verse number 20, them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. Public rebuke for public sin, for the testimony of the gospel, for the honor of God's name. And so that is something regarding David's unique position. There was a public testimony reserved in this regard. But thirdly, we've also got to keep in mind that in this way, God proves the ugliness of sin. The Lord at times takes occasion to punish sin in an individual to publicly demonstrate his abhorrence of that sin. Ananias and Sapphira. 
Also, there are times when God acts in a way to demonstrate publicly his abhorrence of a particular sin. In Psalm 99, we read, verse number 8, it says this, that God was a God that forgiveth them, though God took vengeance of their inventions. It's referring back to the people of God in the Old Testament. Turn back, please, to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. And here we have the account of the making of the golden calf. And you have verse number 7 where Moses is on the mount. And the Lord says to Moses, Go get thee down for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They turned aside quickly out of the way. They've made them a molten calf. Verse number 10, the Lord says, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. You see, this is gross sin. Publicly turning away from the Lord in this idolatrous fashion. And what does Moses do? Verse 11, he prays. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And he pleads for the honor of God's name amongst the Egyptians. And what happens in verse 14? The Lord repented of the evil which he had thought to do unto his people. The Lord hears the intercession of Moses. But look towards the end of the chapter, verse number 35. Where it says, And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. So the Lord does hold back his wrath in response to Moses' prayers. But there's still a public testimony of the awfulness of their sin. That they would know this is the Lord's will regarding this particular sin. And when you think of David, you've got to realize that David's sin is particularly, particularly wicked. You may say, well, is that a fair way to describe sin? Can we talk of one sin being more sinful than another sin? Don't we think that way sometimes? We, we tell the kids, sin is sin. One sin keeps you out of God's presence. One sin makes you a sinner in the sight of God. But our, our catechizers, those who confess the faith that we hold to in the Westminster Standards, in the larger catechism, question 150, they ask this question, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous in themselves in the sight of God? The answer is, all transgressions of the law are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. So there are some sins that are more sinful than others. Not that the nature is different, but the sin itself is particularly heinous in the sight of God. Question 151 then asks the question, what are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? Well, the answer this way, sin receive their aggravations, first of all, from the person's offending. This is a long answer, I'm not going to read it all to you right now, I'm going to pick out the relevant sections. But sin is particularly wicked in God's sight when the person offends is of greater experience or grace, eminent for profession, gifts, place, office, guides the others, and whose example is likely to be followed by others. 
And so for David to sin, given his role, his prominence, the grace he's enjoyed, his sin is particularly heinous in the sight of God. They also say, it's the third answer they give, that sin receives aggravations, thirdly, from the nature and quality of the offence. If it be against the express letter of the law, break many commandments, contain in it many sins, if it not only conceived in the heart, but breaks forth in words and actions, scandalize others, and admit of no reparation, if done deliberately, willfully, presumptuously. You see, this is David's sin. He couldn't take back his actions. He can't make reparation for Uriah's death. He can do nothing about this situation. It is scandalous. It contains many sins. There's a multiplicity of sins in David's actions here. And so the chastisements that David experiences are demonstrations of the nature of his sin. That we would see the nature of his sin. That we would see its ugliness. And that even David himself, as he feels the weight and the consequence of his sin, that he would value God's grace. That even as he feels the pain, he would understand the grace of God that put away his sin. His sin that brought about such repercussions, yet his sin is forgiven in the sight of God. And that others will be warned. How is it possible that God's children will play loose with adultery in light of this particular sin? That they will not guard their marriages. That they will allow their eyes to wander. That they will allow themselves to build inappropriate relationships. This whole context is telling us about the wickedness of adultery in the heart of man. And David is a living testimony to that reality before us today. It's also clear. How is it possible that God's people would so lightly value life? Adultery, murder here. And yet God's people live in a way that they will take life lightly. They will live carelessly. They will not stand up for righteousness around them. You see, this is a manifestation of the ugliness of sin in this chastisement. Yet in all this, David testifies to knowing God's forgiveness. Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. Fourthly, to think of God's mysterious ways of dealing with men, we're trying to understand what's happening here. We should take time to note God's unusual provision. See, this portion we've read together, it leads to the point in verse number 24 that Solomon is born. These are connected events. Verse 24 gives the connection. David comforts his wife, went in unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son. And he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Another son is born to Bathsheba. I think it's significant and interesting. I'm not even sure all the reasons for it. But you have there in verse 15 that Bathsheba is referred to as Uriah's wife. But now in verse number 24, Bathsheba, his wife. See the recognition that the sin that was caused that brought the death of one child now in God's unusual provision, brings God's blessing upon the birth of Solomon. Peace. Testimony that 
David is at peace with God. He's also given the name, verse number 25, Jedidiah. Loved of God, verse 15, the Lord loved, or verse 24, the Lord loved him. God's ways of grace are mysterious. The Lord takes and the Lord gives. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And though sin abounds here, verse number 24 is testimony that grace superabounds. Verse 15 it says the Lord struck the child. In verse 25, sorry, verse 24, the Lord loved the child. God's ways are mysterious. Fifthly, as we think of this mystery, we see grace's eternal prospect. The servants are confused. The child dies, David goes, dresses, goes and worships God, and they wonder how that can take place. Verse 22 gives the answer. While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. First draft of my notes. I had a question mark after grace's eternal prospect. Because I understand uh, there's challenges as to how significant this reference is. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. How significant is this? Some say this is David's confidence. The child is with the Lord in heaven. Others say it's simply a statement of fact. The reality of death. Death has occurred. Nothing more to do. I will follow the child to death. But he shall not come back to me. He's not going to live having died. And so some make a statement, if you like, of, of finality. Others seeing it a statement of hope. I've thought a lot about this this week. I've thought a lot about it over the years. And I think it's fair to say my mind has changed back and forth at different times. But I think I can say with a fair degree of confidence tonight... This is a manifestation of David's belief in life after death. That is clear. He's not referring to the body of this child in the grave. He is saying, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. At no point does David perceive his child as ceasing to exist. It is, I believe, a very clear testimony to David's conviction of life after death. And for David, death is not just the grave. Death involves separation of body and soul. But as David contemplates the grace of God and the mercy of God, the goodness of God, following all the days of his life, he then says, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David understands the afterlife in the sense of going to be with the Lord in the Lord's house forever. And so therefore, if he's saying, I shall go to him, I do believe on balance, it is David asserting his confidence of the eternal well-being of the child. And so here we may see in God's mysterious ways that God is showing mercy to the child as he causes David to suffer here. 
And the mercy may well be that the child is taken to be with the Lord and spared the sword that will come on David's house forevermore. I don't know for certain. But I think on balance, that is a very fair way to see the text. And so I say this is a showing of God's gracious eternal prospect for the child. So lots of questions. But God's ways are just and good and right. And however we understand this chapter, we must be very careful not to in any way present God in a way that is less than good and kind and fair. But thirdly, just very briefly, as we think of this act of chastisement, the Lord dealing with David, we do see the piety of God's repentant servant. One of the outcomes of this tragedy is that it allows us to see the heart of David. If this hasn't happened, if this event does not happen, we are hindered from seeing David's renewed heart. Renew in me a right spirit. Here it is. We're seeing it in the very page of the word of God. We see his repentant spirit in his actions. The previous year of his life is marked by hardness, adultery and murder. A hard-heartedness against the ways of God. Now faced with his sin, he is brought to repentance and we see a renewed servant of God. We see it in his prayer here. Verse 16, David therefore besought God for the child. We see a prayer that is fervent. He besought the Lord seven days, verse number 18. We find him not eating. We find him falling on his face before God. In sackcloth and ashes, more than likely, he changes his garments, verse number 20. He humbles himself in the sight of God. He's earnest in his prayers. He fasts before God. Fasting again that marks affliction, afflicted himself in the sight of God, realizing his humility before the sovereign God. His prayer is focused. Verse number 16, he besought God for the child. Fervent praying, focused praying. He's got something to bring to God. And in his prayers, he's praying in faith. Verse 22 is wonderful. While I fasted and wept, he says to himself, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? He's not doubting the sincerity of God's word. But he's hoping in the mercy of God. We can hope in the mercy of God. We pray in light of God's mercy. We humbly come before God and who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live. There are burdens that we carry and we do not know God's ways. But as long as there is a prospect of a hopeful answer, we pray upon the ground that God is gracious and delights to show his grace according to his will. David has no promise here. He's no assurance. He has the reality that judgment has been written above the head of this child. 
and yet he falls before the mercy of God. There's a mark of his renewed spirit. We also see it in his worship, don't we? Verse 20. He gets up from the earth, he washes, changes his apparel, comes into the house of the Lord and worships. Here David is following his forefather Job. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a wonderful challenge here, a very stirring challenge to submit to God in all of his ways. You see, he's worshipping here despite personal loss. When we suffer personal loss, the tendency is to stay away from worship. Or when we come to worship, we don't actually worship. Personal loss often brings us to the point we are bitter against God. And the very last thing in our hearts is to worship God. But this is what happens when someone has the Spirit of God in their soul. They are glad to get to the house of God to worship despite personal loss. And despite prayer not being answered as hoped. Prayer was answered. Just not in the way that David hoped for. But in the context of such as he may perceive unanswered prayer, he still brings himself to worship the Lord. It's another revelation of his gracious response to God's trials. But also, please note, just for your own comfort, for your own edification, for your own instruction, that when a suffering saint gets to the house of God, it's not only showing their submission to God's ways, but it also brings them to the place where they can receive the comfort of God. He comes, verse 20, into the house of the Lord. It's not yet the temple. That's not built until Solomon's time. It is some sort of makeshift tabernacle. But I believe it is the place where the ark was. The ark's brought back. It's the place where blood was shed upon the mercy seat. You see, when the child of God in their tears come to the house of God to worship They are shown afresh the glory of Christ and the mercy of God. And there they remind themselves that God is for them. For nothing shall separate the child of God from the love of Christ who has died and bled and intercedes on their behalf. Therefore they know that all things work together for their good. Romans chapter 8 can be written along the margin of verse 20 of 2 Samuel 12. For in the house of God, David is reminded of the unchanging covenantal faithfulness of God. Thirdly, we see him comforting. Don't, just don't miss, don't pass over quickly verse number 24. And David comforted Bathsheba his wife. Hardness of heart that would callously send a brave soldier to the front line to face his death is replaced now by a tenderness of spirit. Sin hardens the heart. God's grace brings tenderness toward others. We wouldn't see any of this if it was not for God's just and proper dealing with David at this time. And so we see here, I believe, is a manifestation of how we all should deal with our trials and our troubles. We get before God in prayer. We worship God faithfully. 
and we live in love for others around us that may also be suffering at the same time as we are. God's ways are mysterious, but always right and always good. I know Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let's bow together, please, in prayer. Eternal God and Father, we come before thee. We've sought to just carefully think through these challenging verses. Lord, I pray that answers that have been offered will be according indeed to your mind and your will. Pray, O God, that you take away those things that are not according to truth. Pray, dear Father, that you would use the word, as I prayed at the beginning, that you'd use it perhaps as a word in season to some soul, or a word of preparation to others. That in all of our ways, when we cannot trace the hand of God, help us to trust the hand of God. We thank you for your grace in David's life. And though his fall was, was very, very great, we thank you, O Lord, that your grace abounds above all of his sin. We thank you for Christ and the blood shed for David and for sinners like ourselves. May our confidence again rest in your grace offered to us in Christ. We worship, we praise your name. You're the God that gives and the God that takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Help us in these difficult times. May we know your hand to be upon us in Jesus' precious name. Amen.